This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Ted Koppel in for Neil Conan. And we're broadcasting today from the Knight Studio in front of an unpredictable live audience that doesn't know when to applaud and when to shut up. I'll tell you when to applaud. Hold on here. We're broadcasting today from the Knight Studio at the Museum in downtown Washington. That's what you're supposed to be applauding. Go for it. Thank you. For the past two years, my old friend Leroy Seavers has been keeping a diary. But unlike all of you who may jot down your private thoughts each day, Leroy has shared his ups and downs for all the world to see. His blog, My Cancer, on the NPR.org website, has attracted a remarkable community of cancer survivors. Each one has drawn enormous strength from all of the others. At last count, and this is a a truly miraculous number, at last count, more than 30,000 comments have been posted to the site. For those of us who have worked with Leroy, a six-foot-five-inch force of nature, for those of us who accompanied him on many assignments around the globe, including crossing into Iraq with the 3rd Infantry Division at the start of the Iraq War, reading his latest blog entries has been wrenching. Yesterday's began, and I'm going to read it for you now, and then you'll hear from Leroy. It's scary, very scary. Trying to get up out of a chair or off the bed, and you can't quite make it. Your arms or your legs are missing that last little oomph that will put you on your feet and up on the walker. You have to sit back down, gather your strength, and go for it again. It scares me because I know that someday, sooner or later, I may not be able to make that second try. Someday I may have to accept being bed or chair ridden, but there's no way of knowing when that might actually happen. That was Leroy's blog yesterday. Leroy's candid commentaries for Morning Edition, his special on cancer, on discovery, and his visits to Talk of the Nation are all part of his gift to those who face cancer's challenges. Don't be defined by it, he has urged us all. If you're a cancer survivor and you want to talk with Leroy, our number here is 800-989-8255. Our email address is talk at npr.org, and you can join the conversation on our blog at npr.org slash blog of the nation. And in a few minutes, we'll we'll be joined by another heroic person, Elizabeth Edwards. But first... My dear friend Leroy Severs joins us from his home in Potomac, Maryland. How are you doing today? Well, that's always a tough question to answer. Um, the easy answer is I'm doing okay, but it's, it's tough. It's not only tough for you. I, I, I don't know if, and I, and I may be catching you unawares here, but uh, Lori, your, your, your dear friend, your companion, your wife, uh, wrote a, a really moving blog today in which she spoke of what it is like for those who support cancer survivors. Uh, do you have it handy? Um, I don't. Um, but but I'll, be, look I'll, around. She, I'll bet she's I'll, looking around all over the room right now. I'll, all right, forget about that for a moment. The the notion that I mean what you said yesterday that the day may come when you're not going to be able to get out of that chair or get out of bed it's got to scare the hell out of you. Oh, it absolutely does. Um, we don't think of ourselves that way. You know, we've always been self-sufficient. There are things you take for granted. 
I cannot simply get up and go to the kitchen and get something out of the refrigerator. I have to think it through. I have to plan it. I may need Lori's help. Um, it changes everything, and that's a huge change. I don't know how else to, to, to put it. it. It changes your entire life. I just want to give people a sense, Leroy. I mean, you and I, uh, we, we talk often, and uh, much of what we talk about has nothing to do with cancer. It's just reminiscing about some of the great places that we've been. You and I never thought that, that your death, if and when it comes, would come this way. We've been to too many crazy places together. Oh, sure. Um, you and I have, have been in situations, whether it's Iraq or other places, where at least I thought death was probably pretty imminent, that, that things were not going particularly well and something bad was about to happen in the next 10 seconds or so. But those, it's interesting we could accept. That was part of what we did, part of who we were. Um, this is different. And it's also, you know, it's been two and a half years. That's a long time to face your death. You want to give people just a thumbnail sketch? I mean, two and a half years ago, you asked the question that I guess everyone who, who is diagnosed with cancer asks, and that is, doctor, how long have I got? What'd they tell you? Absolutely. That's, that's always the first question you ask. It's a silly question because no one knows. Um, silly is actually probably the, the wrong word. They don't have an answer. They can guess. Um, the first answer I was given was three to six months. And, you know, two and a half years later, here we are. But what's not strange, I have a lot of cancer in my body. But none of it is in and of itself life-threatening. So when I, we talk about that now, and we're obviously talking about it because it's very serious right now, no one can tell me what's going to happen. Is, is it the overall burden? It's a huge burden on your body. But at what point does something happen? What happens? What's going to kill me? Um, I don't have an answer to that. I think when you, and I, when you and I did the town meeting together after the Living with Cancer program, and you were the, you were the central character of that program, I think a lot of people who saw you for the first time thought, Man, this guy doesn't look as though as though he has a fatal disease. You're a big man. You looked robust, full of vigor, full of life. Um, I, I'm I'm going to tell people something now. I I don't think you will mind my telling them this. You don't look that robust anymore, Leroy. I mean, the 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 disease has taken its toll. What? Yeah, <laughs> I don't look fabulous anymore. It's, well, you look fabulous. You just look you just look slimmer. You're a slim fabulous now. That's certainly true. I mean, and I can see it as well. I certainly feel it. Um, I can tell in my body that it's taken a toll. Um, I've lost a lot of weight, and you know something I always wanted to do. My doctors did not want me to do. Um, you're right. No, I can tell over the last two and a half years. It is getting to me, and that's part of what I'm talking about. What is happening to me? You know, what is going to happen to me? I don't have that answer. As the, as the readers of your blog know, you had some scans a few weeks ago, and the news was lousy. Talk Terrible. About yeah. What was it? Well, 
for about the last six, eight months, we've been dealing with my spine. Um, the cancer apparently decided it liked the taste of my bones. And I had three major surgeries and all sorts of problems with it. And that's really what we had been concentrating on and sort of ignoring the rest of what was going on um, in my body. So it came time for what we assumed were routine scans, and it turned out it's everywhere. It's in my liver, lungs, ribs, muscles, brain. The brain is, is a troubling one. Um, so I had a little radiation on a couple of spots that were you know, very troublesome, but there's not a whole lot more now I can do. Leroy, uh, we've got a caller with a question, Smokey in Portland, Oregon. I think this question is going to resonate with you. Smokey, go ahead. Yes. Go for it. Uh, well, I, I just, um, I, I'm a two-time cancer survivor, um, and I'm currently dealing with prostate cancer, and I'm actually doing very well. But sometimes I feel like the, the biggest burden I have is trying to be heroic, and, uh, you know, this projection on people with cancer that they have to somehow be brave. And sometimes I wonder why we have to be that way. I mean, uh, I know that a lot of people say it beats the alternative and so on and so forth. But sometimes I actually question that. Does it really beat the alternative? And I just want to know, do we always have to be brave and why people expect us to always be brave? And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Smokey. Leroy, I, I, I know that question resonates with you, and particularly because you're such a big guy. Little guys like me don't, you know, the expectations of us are a lot less than they are of you big guys. There is an expectation that you have to be brave. There's a real sort of thought that you have to, you know, and, and I talk about it, we all do, you have to live each day to the maximum. That doesn't mean you have to go out and you know run a marathon or climb Mount Everest, but there is pressure to you know do to live a full life. You can't always do that. Sometimes a full life, the best you can do is make it out to the couch, you know, if you're under chemo or radiation or something, and just sit there for a day. Um, that pressure, I think, we come up with ourselves. I think people want to be reassured by us, that we're leading the best lives we can. Um, and, and that provides some of that pressure as well. It's hard. I mean, you definitely feel it, but you can't always live up to it. I've got an email here from Ellie, who is a cancer survivor. And, and Ellie says, as I listen, and as a five-and-a-half-year ovarian cancer warrior, I'm so pleased you mentioned his love and companion, Laurie. I truly believe it is harder on those that love us and sit by our sides. They, too, are help, helpless and hopeful and full of love. I could go on and on, and she signs it, Ellie. Um, some thoughts on, on those who sit by your side and hold your hand. Absolutely harder on them than on us. Um, I know what's happening to me. I know how I feel. Um, I don't express it particularly well sometimes. Um, but the other person, all they can really do is worry. All they can do is try to, you know, help somehow, try to come up with something to help. It's, it's excruciating. I can't imagine what it's like. Lori and um, her blog wrote, and, and I'm doing this from memory, about sort of sleeping with one ear cocked and one eye half open. Absolutely true. Um, although I have a loud voice, I... I you know, it may not be cocked all that sharply all right. She's nodding anxiously. Leroy, um, yeah, hang on, hang on for a second. We're going to take a break. I'm talking to my friend Leroy Severs, and in a moment, 
We'll be joined by Elizabeth Edwards. If you're a cancer survivor and would like to talk with either of our guests, our number is 800-989-8255. I'm Ted Koppel. It's the Talk of the Nation from NPR News. This is Talk of the Nation from NPR News. I'm Ted Koppel at the Knight Studio at the Museum. We're joined by a live audience here, and I'm talking about living with cancer with my friend Leroy Severs, and we're now joined by another friend, Elizabeth Edwards. She is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress who has had her own public profile battling the disease, and she joins us from member station WUNC in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Ms. Edwards, can you hear me all right? I can hear you, Ted, and it's great to be with you, and particularly great to be with Leroy. Absolutely. Hi, it's great to talk to you again. Delighted to have the two of you together. Um, let, me, let me begin where we must begin, with, with all people who are battling cancer. How are you doing? Um, well, today I'm doing fine, but I have an upcoming scan, and just like... Uh, Leroy, sometimes you think they're going to be, you know, this is just a usual kind of, I do it all the time, but there really is no such thing. And if it was possible to hold my breath for a solid week until I had that scan and talked to my doctor, I would, um, because I know that these are the days on which I find out whether I'm moving forward or moving backwards. Is there a moving forward with cancer? Well, I mean, it's possible for the size of the tumors to be reduced. When I was with Leroy um, uh, and you uh, a year ago with the Discovery Channel special on living with cancer, Leroy's tumors had been reduced in size. You could see an ebullience in him, you know, that, and, and so you look forward to those moments. You, you, you're not going to chase the disease away entirely. There are pieces of it that are too small for them to find. Um, and uh, until we have a cure, that's not going you know, to, if you're once you've got it, in the way that he and I have it, we're going to always have it. But that doesn't mean that you can't move forward. You can't reduce the size. Um, but each scan is um, another opportunity to find out bad news as well as good. I have to put this in the, in the context of just yesterday, and we played, uh, I don't know if you could hear the first hour of our, of our broadcast, uh, we played a soundbite that, that your husband gave yesterday in which he sort of left the door open for running for vice president. Um, and, and, you know, given, Yes, I heard your audience laugh about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, 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 they weren't laughing about him running for vice president. It's just no, laugh, laugh, Ken, laughing it, about tap, tap dancing around the thing, you know. Um, when, you, when you are battling a disease like cancer, uh, and, and you made it very, very clear that you would be supportive of your husband, John, in his, in his run for the presidency. Being a vice presidential candidate ain't quite the same thing. Do you, 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 you feel just as supportive of that if he decides he wants to do it, if it's offered to him? I guess there are a couple of, I mean, I'm, I'm supportive of what he chooses to do. Uh, I don't think that this is a likelihood. I think that he's being very polite and, 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 and uh, respectful, as, um, as I think he probably should be. But what he said numerous times, this is not something he seeks. And given the time of our life, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. 
Let me uh, go to a question from our audience. Brian has a terrific question. I'd, I'd like both of you to answer it. Leroy first. Brian, go ahead with your question. Um, you mentioned earlier in the show that you try not to let cancer define you, but when you talk about how it's such a burden to get out of bed in the morning and to have to get that extra oomph to get to the walker, how do you not let cancer define you? You can't. Um, it does. I mean, I am many things, but I am a cancer patient. And gradually, one of the things you have to come to grips with is that becomes an ever greater part of your life. Like it or not, um, that's how I am defined. That's how my doctors have to define me. That's how my body is defining me. Is that, is that an evolution, Leroy, from a, from a position you might have held two years ago? Oh, sure. A total denial before. It's like, you know, I can, I can get around this. It's just, you know, having cancer is just one part of me. I can do all these other things. That has changed over the last two and a half years. Elizabeth Edwards? It hasn't won, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's they, making yeah. a hell of a try. Sorry, Elizabeth. That's right. And no, no, no. There are time, and there's, there are times when it doesn't control your life. You try to control it. Um, Leroy had a wonderful post about, um, you know, cancer. I don't know whether he used sort of a gorilla or uh, imagery or not, but it's this thing that's a big part of your life. And what you try to do is minimize the amount of time at which it yells at you. You have cancer. You have cancer. Um, and you try to, so you try to keep that. Sometimes it's easier when your body's failing you or when you're in the middle of treatment, certainly after, right after a surgery, you, you haven't the energy to quiet it, and it, it does control so much of your life. But most of the time, when you're not at those low points, you do have the capacity not to run it out of the house, but to at least limit the amount of time in which it controls the conversation. Let me, let me just there ask are one. Times yeah, go ahead, Leroy. I'm sorry. Well, there are times... You know, you can have friends over, you can be watching a movie, you can do whatever, where cancer isn't necessarily in the room. Um, and there are other times where it's the only thing in the room. Mm-hmm. We've got a phone call from Stephanie. I, uh, Stephanie, I hope I pronounced the, uh, the name of the town right. Is it Lewiston, New York? Yes, it is. Go ahead with your question. That's correct. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for doing this show. Uh, I turned 51 this past Sunday. I was diagnosed on May 30th with cancer. I had a routine scan, which showed it's in my liver, and the doctors are not giving me much hope. Um, I want to comment on a couple of things. Not being defined by cancer is very difficult right now. Um, I'm not in denial. I'm planning my funeral. I'm taking care of things that I need to take care of, uh, but it's always there in my mind. I'm trying to be the same person that I was, but it's very difficult sometimes. People don't want me to cook or lift anything or do the things that that I'm able to do right now, and I hope to be able to do them for for quite a while. Um, The part about being brave that you were talking about before, um, that's where I'm at right now because I'm able to do that, but I understand that I I won't be able to uh, probably maintain that um, throughout this, and that's that's difficult. Um, I'd like to do this with some kind of dignity and strength, and and you two are, are an inspiration. So mostly, without a question, I just wanted to say thank you for doing this. This program is so helpful. Uh, I've called my family and said, you should listen to this. So thanks for putting this out there so people understand what we are going through. Thank you, Stephanie. It's, uh, I, I find that there is a, uh, a level of understanding that exists. Uh, Elizabeth, maybe you would go first. A level of understanding that exists among cancer patients that those of us who who do not have the disease maybe don't get. 
you know, it, I don't know that we can, any of us can be as eloquent as Stephanie has been about wanting to pick up something herself and wanting to cook her own dinner or cook dinner for her family to keep doing the things as long as she can. You know, and the brave part of it that Smokey had asked about earlier, it's partly our response to claiming some control. And if the minute we don't ask brave, the minute we um, let people see that, that, that this is really taking a toll on us, they want to take care of us. And part of what we need is, honestly, as long as we can, to take care of ourselves, not to give cancer any more days than it's going to have. It's going to take some already. The question is whether we give it, hand over the days we don't need to. And Stephanie's uh, in determination to hold on to those days is really um, inspiring. And I completely understand it, and I have a complete connection with her based on that. I expect Leroy does, and every person who suffers with cancer understands her need um, to, to have those days uh, belong to her and not to the disease. There's another level of this, Leroy, that I'd like you to touch on for a moment, and that is you, you, you tend to be the bravest with the people you know the least well, and that means you tend to show some of your fears to the people that you know best and love best, so they tend to, they tend to carry the heaviest burden there. Oh, sure, and it's, it's an odd thing. You find yourself comforting them sometimes more than the other way around um you know i find myself saying look it's going to be okay well we all know it's not but that's you know that's the role you you come into just sort of a, a thought on on the earlier thing the most important thing i think anyone can give someone with cancer is a little bit of normalcy it doesn't always have to be about cancer you know talk about movies talk about politics talk about sports just something else is is so welcome at times that that you know our lives are not just the disease that's not the only thing we are i want to bring in another questionnaire here in the audience at the museum tori hi um i come from a very close family in connecticut and my great grandmother my grandmother and my mother have all been diagnosed with breast cancer um, my mother is the only one not to die from it. Um, thank God she's in remission right now. But um, I still remember the day when my mom came home from the doctor's office and said um, she did have breast cancer and she'd need a double mastectomy, possibly a hysterectomy, and she'd be starting chemo. Um, how do you both go about, when you had to tell your family, how did you do it and how did they react? Elizabeth Edwards? Um. I had, of course, my older daughter to tell, and I told her she went with me uh, and with my husband when I had the biopsy. So we all found out together about the cancer, um, and I've been as honest with her as I know how to be. With uh, my younger children, it was harder because they were very young when I first had uh, the cancer, and when it came back, I sat with them at the table and said, how many people at this table are not going to die? And they've just sat there. Of course, they all know we're going to die. And I said, well, I'm going to die too, and now I know what I'm probably going to die of. Uh, there's no indication I'm going to die anytime soon. We don't, nobody knows, but nobody knows when anyone is going to die. And so I, I tried to say everything that was true, but not make it too scary. That doesn't mean they're not scared. They are scared. Um, and I, every once in a while, they'll, uh, they'll 
open up enough for me to see that there's an underlying fear there. But for me, the most important thing is at every stage to be as honest as I know how to be with them. Maybe, you know, give them the primary school version or often referred to as the classic comic book version of cancer, but, but always to be honest. I have an email here from Nancy in Stockbridge, Michigan, and, and she writes, a very close friend has been fighting colon cancer for the past four years. Of course, I love him and would do anything in my power to lighten his burden. He refuses most assistance but accepts frequent emailing in maintaining contact. My question is, as someone who is battling, what advice can you give me? I would move heaven and earth for my friend. I do feel helpless. What can I do? Leroy? Just continue to be a friend. Um, that's what's most important. Um, I agree with Elizabeth. Be totally honest. Um, I think you have to be. For so many years, people didn't really want to talk about it. And you have to. I think, you know, it, as difficult as it can be, I don't always want to talk about it, but it's important to me that I do, that, that when the person wants to talk about it, talk about it. When they don't, don't. Just be the friend that you've always been to them. And, and that's the best you can do. I want to see if we can get a lot of questions in because we have a great many callers out there. Aurora in Andover, um, go ahead, please. Hi there. Are you still there? Yep. yep. I, my question is, um, and you've answered some of it, I, I have had cancer for 17 years, and I've been three times told that I should put my affairs in order. And um, during the course of that, I have done so. And I have also been told that I have a very positive attitude, and that's what's keeping me alive. But my assessment is that positive attitude only lets me enjoy each moment. I don't think it has any real effect on the disease or the survival thereof. And that would be a heck of a burden anyway, wouldn't it? Because then the implication is if you don't survive, you had a lousy attitude. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there are also people that assign my surviving this long under such dire circumstances because it is in lots of parts of my body, to a miracle. And since I am not religious, I tend to think it is just um, the luck of the draw. Leroy, do you want to respond to that? I mean, you and I have talked about that and related subjects many, many times. Um, yeah, that's sort of one of, the, one of the questions. You're right. I mean, there is pressure of saying, you know, you have to have a positive attitude because if, if you don't, you somehow fail. A lot of cancer patients don't like the fighting analogy for the same reason, that, oh, I was fighting the disease and I lost. You know, no one wants to think that way. You fight the disease as long as you can, and, and you have to take it at that. Um, the larger questions are the larger questions, and, and quite honestly, I don't have the answers to them. I'm certainly looking. Um, you and I have talked about that a lot, but I don't have them. I need to remind our, our listeners that uh, they are listening to Talk of the Nation from NPR News. Um, John, uh, who's also here at the museum with us, you have a question. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, Leroy, um, how do, or Elizabeth, uh, how do you handle a situation where a healthy person will unintentionally say something that's insensitive? Uh, I have a little guilt because once I was, uh, had a friend who was dying of uh, brain cancer and I, I made a comment, well, you know, uh, I could go tomorrow, so, trying to cheer her up. And then after saying that, I realized that, well, perhaps that wasn't the right 
best thing to say. And I felt kind of guilty about that. She did pass shortly after that. Elizabeth? Um, I have a, our 16-year-old our son died in 1996, and I had a lot of people say incredible things to me. And I got some wonderful advice from someone who had lost a brother. And he said, people will say the wrong thing, but know that they intended to say the right thing. And I've always kept that in mind, however stupid the things are people say. And, and believe me, uh, John, that was not the stupidest thing I've heard by some considerable distance. Um, uh, I always know that they meant to say the right thing. And I think that all of us keep that in mind. I mean, there are times probably when I don't want to hear it. I mean, having been on the campaign trail, people will always come up to me and say, you know, I really wanted to give you a hug. My wife died of the same thing that you died of. And I don't know exactly what to say to that, you know, and, and, but it's, I know that what they're trying a, to do is make a connection. It's a premature condolence. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, that makes me feel so much better uh, then. Of course it does. Of course it does. Leroy, on, 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 on the same question, insensitive comments? I'm not sure you really can. I mean, you have to be able to laugh about some stuff. I mean, there are funny things that happen. Um, and, and it's like Elizabeth said, I know that if people say something that I could jump on and say, oh, that's offensive, they didn't mean it that way. Um, I had what I thought was one of the great jokes ever that fell completely flat because I think people were, were afraid to, to laugh. Um, well, you know, the humor, the humor in cancer does sound like a dry hole, doesn't it? I mean, we'll, we'll get back to your joke in a minute. I've got to do a break here. <laughs> this is Talk of the Nation from NPR News. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Ted Koppel in Washington, broadcasting live from the new museum, I guess is distinct from the old one. This one is in Washington, D.C., in the night studios. Here are headlines from some of the stories that we're following today at NPR News. The Senate has voted to approve a measure overhauling the rules on secret government eavesdropping. The bill also grants immunity to telecom companies that helped listen in on Americans after the 9-11 attacks. And six people, including three officers and three militants, have been killed in an attack by armed gunmen outside the U.S. consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. Turkey and the U.S. have called the shooting a terrorist attack. Details coming up on All Things Considered from NPR News. Tomorrow on Talk of the Nation, a new plan in Italy would fingerprint every Roma gypsy in the country. It's the first time the government has targeted an ethnic minority since the days of Mussolini. Guy Raz talks about a growing xenophobia in Europe tomorrow on Talk of the Nation from NPR News. Right now I'm talking with Elizabeth Edwards and Leroy Severs. The subject, the roller coaster ride that is living with cancer. If you're a cancer survivor and you want to be part of the conversation, and even if you're not, our number is 800 989 
855. Leroy, you were going to tell a cancer joke. Well, uh, I'm not sure it's a cancer joke. It's just funny things that people say. The first time I was diagnosed, um, went to you know get everything in order and went to do a will, and sat down with a lawyer who said, you know, boy, the estate taxes, you know, all of this is going great. All you have to do is live another two months. And I sort of paused and thought, well, that's not necessarily a given. But he had no idea. <laughs> I mean, did um, he, but he knew you have cancer, right? No, he didn't actually. Oh, he didn't know that. Got it. Yeah. So I told him, and his face fell, and he felt <laughs> terrible. And it's like, look, this is this is fine. All right. The the cancer joke I was going to tell, I'll make it quick. There's a joke in broadcasting that you know broadcasting is more important and more complicated than brain surgery. Well, I had had brain surgery, and at one point was in a meeting with a line of staples down the side of my head where a tumor had been removed. And I explained to the people, I said, look, I'm one of the few people in America that actually knows the difference between broadcasting and brain surgery. Sort of paused for the laughter, and it was dead silent. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I can, it's I can okay understand to that. laugh about it. Yeah, well, sometimes it's important to laugh about it, but uh, again, I, I guess people are more concerned about offending than they are about having a chuckle. There's, there's an well, email. Have to, yeah, go ahead, please. I was going to tell you, uh, Ted, that one woman wrote me uh, one of the funniest things that, she, that I'd ever gotten, uh, which I hesitate to introduce anything that way, uh, is uh, well, she said that her chemo, she was really regretted that her chemotherapy made her look so much like Dick Cheney. Well, I don't know what she looked like before, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I assume that she didn't look like Dick Cheney. Yeah. So was... Here's an email from Bill in Berkeley. Uh, in 1996, I was diagnosed with cancer at the base of my tongue and in lymph nodes of both sides of my neck. Contrary to what was said on your program, my first question was not, doctor, how long do I have? Also, when my doctor wanted to tell me the odds or my chances, I interrupted to say that I didn't want to know. My view was that I would have to assume that I would be in whatever percentage survived and would never know if I was proved wrong. Thoughts from either one of you, Elizabeth? Um, I, go, I, I have to be sympathetic with this. I go back and forth about whether it is I want to know. One thing I do know is that the numbers that we get are very unreliable. You hear are 10-year statistics. Well, the medicine 10 years ago was nothing like it is now. A lot of the medicines, in fact, I doubt very many of the medicines that I'm getting and maybe that Leroy's getting were available 10 years ago. Uh, so, you know, the prognosis should be better now than it was for someone who got cancer 10 years ago, and and also, uh, I, you know, every day. That's why I, I so want Leroy to hold on. You know, I, I so want him to make it through this most recent crisis to see that ebullience again uh, because I just feel we're on the verge of so much. Uh, and so, I mean, I can understand wanting to believe that those odds have absolutely nothing to do with me. Leroy, got a question here that uh, I'll confess you and I have talked about. I haven't done anything about it, but we've talked about it. Clemencia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Are you still there? Thank you. Um, my name is Clemencia Converse. At the time, I was in Florida. I'm originally from Colombia. Uh, I was 38 years old when I was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Single parent with two kids. My son, Sergio, was 15 at the time, and Kike was eight. So when I was told this, I, my whole world crashed. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know all well, my family's in Colombia, and I was thinking, what can I do? Thank God I had awesome doctors, and um, 
after I went through surgery, and uh, and this is a decision that I had to take within a week. My mom flew in and my sister-in-law to take care of me. And one thing that saved my life, I think, is medical marijuana, my doctors, and my friends. And another thing that I think is very, very important is to be able to talk about it. Take that energy that the word cancer has and knock it down. Talk to everybody about it. Try to tell people, hey, you have yourself check whatever type of illness you think you have. Don't just think you have it. Just go for it. Go have, have it tested. Have, go to the doctor. Let them know. But one thing that I want to voice out is to take that awful name that the media and everything has done with marijuana because I got rid of three very, very scary drugs just by having medical marijuana, which you can have it either. You smoke it, but if you don't like to smoke, there's something called marinol, which is the extract. And you're able to, I was able to sleep. I used to take pills to sleep for pain, for depression, for this, for that. And I was more scared of those pills and be addicted to them if I survived cancer. And after my first Clem- Clemencia, I'm going to cut you short because uh, I, I, I think we have the thrust of what you were talking about, and I thank you for sharing with us. Uh, you know, it seems strange with all the with all the drugs that they pump into you, uh, with all the drugs they give you, with the radiation, with the chemo, uh, that there should still be this enormous public sensitivity and official sensitivity about medical marijuana. Leroy? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, it sort of seems to be in the shadows a little bit. Um, a lot of people have asked about it. Um, I have asked only superficially, and quite honestly, it's something that I need to know more about. Um, if it would provide relief, that would be fabulous. Elizabeth, you could you could probably screw up John's political career just by saying that you've <laughs> talked up a couple of times here. Uh, I've actually, uh, though I'm uh, exactly the age, I'm 59 now, exactly the age that marijuana probably would have been part of my history. I'm actually allergic to smoke, so it's not part of my um, personal history. I I think that there has to be a change in the law so that the FDA can examine the efficacy and safety of medical marijuana so we can get this issue off the table. If If it's useful, then it should be available. If it's not useful, um, and uh, then uh, then we should quit uh, dancing with the uh, with these questions and and I, I like Leroy I don't know the answers um, and it's, it seems to me that uh, just because it's a an agricultural product shouldn't be a reason why the FDA can't consider uh, whether or not it could be used. Let's see if we can get a couple more phone calls in Bob in Minneapolis. Hello. I'm an old geezer who was just recently diagnosed with prostate cancer. When you say when you say old geezer, how old a geezer are you? I can't hear well. I hope I'll be able to listen to your responses after I hang up and turn up my radio. Uh, But with respect to your last call, with respect to medical marijuana, there's another drug problem that people face. Many do not realize it. And that is to get oxycodone or oxycontin or hydrocodone, the synthetic uh, narcotics that alleviate the pain. It's usually prescribed with acetaminophen attached. And the acetaminophen is toxic to the liver. It ki- destroys more liver than anything else, including booze. But the reason it's attached, I have been told, and I would love to have someone confirm it, is that it makes it more difficult for the drug dealers to 
break it down into the more beneficial substance used in the drug trade. If you could get OxyContin without the acetaminophen, the narcs are all over the doctor who prescribes it, doctor or dentist. Yeah. But uh, my position is, and I hope I, you could, folks can hear me because I won't be able to hear you until I turn up my radio. I was just diagnosed with prostate cancer. I don't know whether I'm on foot or horseback. I'll be 80 in a couple of months. When they look at the old geezer who gets cancer, the point of view is essentially, why don't you check out before you cost us so much money? I mean, there, there is no concept. The young folks who have been on your program, their point of view is they live with cancer, but their life is indefinite. The point of view that is imposed upon us older folks is, why don't you just quietly check out? And I don't know what to face, whether to tolerate a maybe prolonged and mild state of metastatic cancers here, there, and everywhere, or undergo draconian measures with radiation or surgery. The surgery is left out. Bob, I'm, I'm, I'm in a difficult position. Let's fade Bob out. I, uh, Bob, I, I, I hope you'll forgive me for interrupting you, but you've given me a difficult problem here in that you can't hear me. But Bob has raised an, an exceedingly uh, serious issue, and that is, uh, you know, older people given... I mean, there have been political debates about this for many, many years, where given the, the limited resources that are available, sometimes the question is asked, do you give, do you try less hard with an older patient than you try with a younger patient? Elizabeth, any thoughts on that? Well, Bob seemed pretty vigorous, I have to say. Um, uh, but uh, I think that it, there's immorality associated with our rationing health care uh, based on the amount of life that, that, you, that uh, people are projected to have left. Um, obviously, if you had only one vial of medicine and you had a child and you had Bob at 80, you, the vial of medicine, is, would I assume Bob would want it to go uh, to the child. We don't have just one vial of medicine. Uh, and what, what Bob's talking about is an attitude that people have towards him, that, these, that really uh, aggressive ways of attacking the disease should not be used for him. And uh, and I think that is totally wrong. And um, I I have not seen it in the in, among the people that I uh, get chemotherapy with. I see all ages, including friends of Bob's, um, who are who are sitting with me getting the same kinds of treatments that I'm getting. But I but I have heard about this attitude, and and I find it um, uh, discouraging that that we would have that um, that I, that idea that we had the the moral high ground to make that kind of decision. Oregon did this several years ago, and they were trying to do the right thing in terms of rationing health care generally and, and what was going to be the most productive ways to, uh, to use their health care dollars. But when you talk about the age of the patient as a, as a um, characteristic, I mean, what about, you know, some other conditions that they have? Well, if they're blind, maybe it wouldn't matter so much if they, you know, or what if they had no children? Do you give more care to someone with children than you do without children? You really find yourself on an extraordinarily slippery slope. You're listening to Talk of the Nation from NPR News. Let's go to another question here from an audience member. Would you identify yourself? My name is Alan Rothstein from Oceanside, New York. My wife is a survivor, and as we speak, 
The uh, Ovarian Cancer National Alliance is meeting right here in Washington. And they're meeting with doctors and research scientists, and they're discussing new methods in treating cancer. I want to know if any of these methods may help you or what you think of the future in treatments. That, it's, it's an interesting question, uh, Leroy, because I know we've talked about this also often. Uh, sometimes you say, well, I have to keep going because maybe in a month, in two months, in six months, something will come along that, that has properties that just don't exist right now. And you hear that from the doctors a lot. It's just hang on one more month, one more week, you know, six more months. You never know what's coming down the path. I mean, in some basement somewhere, some grad student about to make a breakthrough? Maybe so. On the other hand, maybe not. But they use that, or not use it. It's real. They're, they're making tremendous strides. Some stuff works, some stuff doesn't. And the idea is that, you know, you'd hate to, I guess, just sort of give up just as something comes up um, that will actually help. On the other hand, that can be frustrating as well. There are reports in the media all the time of new breakthroughs, of, you know, here's something new, here's a new study, here's a new drug. And then you, you get into it, and it's like, yeah, but it's not for you. Um, so that's part of the roller coaster ride. Does it help you to know that you have been, I mean, really an inspiration to so many people out there? I, I mentioned at the top of the program, 30,000 people have, have checked in here. Uh, and, I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a huge number of people for whom you are something of a role model, Leroy. Um, I have to admit I have some, not problems with that. It's a little hard for me to understand or to get my head around. Um, I like to think that it's all of us together. It's not just me. Um, I get as much from the, those 30,000 people and all the others out there as, as I hope they do from me. We're all in this together. And, and that, you know, I hope that comes through every day. Elizabeth? The, you know, the 30,000 number for Leroy uh, ignores the number of people who we used to call lurkers on the Internet, the people who just read but don't comment. And I think that one of the things that, that Leroy represents is not just that he gives people an opportunity to open up, and they do, so many of them do, uh, on his blog, but that he is the voice for people. That Sometimes they don't feel they need to speak, he, that he's speaking the words that they're feeling. And that's enormously important because not everyone has the capacity to turn those fears and the desperation and even the happy moments, uh, the appreciation for Lori or the appreciation uh, for cookies somebody brought by into words. Um, and he does have that gift. Uh, and so I don't. I, I understand the, uh, the his inability to grasp his importance to uh, much larger than thirty thousand people um, who he uh, speaks to every day. But it, it is it is there and palpable. Elizabeth Edwards, thank you very very much. It it was really gracious of you to come and join us today. I, I want to add one thing. If you didn't get a chance to ask Leroy your question. During today's program, you can ask him online in a chat room at npr.org. Members of the My Cancer community have been sharing their experiences during today's show, and Leroy will join the chat room in just a few minutes. Again, this conversation continues online at npr.org. 
Elizabeth? You're listening to Talk of the Nation from NPR News.